Hello, and welcome back to My Love Letter Time Machine, a podcast where we are discovering the Victorian love story told through the letters of two ordinary people from Sheffield, Yorkshire, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton, who were courting in the 1880s. I'm Ingrid Birchall Hughes, and I just happen to be their great-great-granddaughter. And this time, we'll be taking a deeper dive into the steel mills of Sheffield, and then we'll be finding out about swapping selfies, Victorian style, and what that might mean for a courting couple. After that lovely seaside rendezvous in August 1879, when Jane came to visit Fred at Bridlington, Fred sadly had to come home, as he wrote, we could not stay any longer on account of the funds. Fred had wondered how long they might be staying, as he noted the food was rather luxurious and must have been costing a lot, but seemed neither to know or to be in any position of control. So I've always assumed that this was being paid for by his company. When I went to the Sheffield archives, I was hoping to find some of the old Brown Bailey and Dixon Steelworks paperwork, and among other things, uncover how they paid for staff holidays, perhaps find some of it in Fred's handwriting, seeing as he was a clerk and responsible for making up the wages. However, none of the paperwork seems to have survived before the second incarnation of the company a couple of years later, when they dropped Mr Dixon after liquidation and reformed as just Brown Bailey. It's entirely possible that all that has survived from that time are the few company letterheads Fred used to write to Janie. I did, however, find out more about that transition period of the works and how it directly impacted on Fred and Jane, and we'll be having a closer look at that when we get to the part of the story that occurs in the summer of 1881. But back to Fred's diary and the late summer of 1879. Although he's back from Bridlington early, it looks like he got the rest of the week off and spent it enjoying the seasonal events at home. The entries are short, and the first is probably one of the more frustrating to read in terms of imparting minimum information. Wednesday, August the 27th. Hansworth Flower Show. Saw Janie, went for a short walk with her. Had a dance in the tent with Ginny Reckless and Emma Hill. It had been raining nearly all day, consequently the flower show is a failure. I was almost assaulted coming home. Fred danced with Janie's cousin, Ginny Reckless, and another girl, but not Jane herself. And the small matter of almost being assaulted coming home. Was it a fumbled mugging? Did Fred cross the path of a drunken angry man? And then he writes, Thursday, August the 28th, went to a dancing at the Cross Keys. Saturday, August the 30th, went to Sheffield with Tom Hughes and Kelsey. First tasted Australian ale. After 12 when I got back, shall not go with them again. So I'm assuming from this Fred is blaming his work colleagues for encouraging him to stay out too late, rather than it being the fault of the Australian ale. Tuesday, September the 2nd. Went with Willie Rennie and Harry Henderson round our works. They were much astonished. I'm not surprised they were astonished. The Brown Bailey and Dixon site was vast, sited on Leeds Road at a cliff on the east side of the city, covering an area of 25 acres, which is about 10 hectares, or very roughly, about the size of 15 football pitches. 
It was only after I went to the archives that I properly understood that Brown, Bailey and Dixon had been in the vanguard of metallurgical development. The company managers, Colbert B. Holland and Arthur Cooper, who both became renowned in their fields, had developed a metallurgical technique based on one they had seen in an industrial fact-finding mission to Germany. They introduced this and other site management modifications to move towards a more efficient commercial production of Bessemer steel. They ensured that the factory was laid out on the modern plan of taking in raw goods from the railway siding at one end and sending it out in finished at the other. 1879 saw Brown, Bailey and Dixon make a record output of railway rails and was the first firm to start production of roll-grooved tramrails. By the following year, they had increased throughput and were making an average of 422 tonnes of basic steel in a week. Fred's aforementioned drinking buddy, Tommy Hughes, was responsible for the quality of the steel on the foundry floor and was able to judge by eye if the proportions were incorrect. This was done by breaking up the pig iron and examining the broken pieces to gauge the quality. The foundry was insanely hot and the work was hard, so the fact that Tommy Hughes, Kelsey and the others liked their beer was perhaps unsurprising. There was a big culture of drinking in steelworks, with beer being drunk actually during the shifts. It was a way of keeping up hydration and being drunkenly numbed to cope with the hellish work. The noise and filth in the area due to the combined outputs of all the steel mills was famous. Five years earlier, in 1874, John Murray wrote in his Handbook for Travellers in Yorkshire, Sheffield, with the exception of Leeds, the largest and most important town in Yorkshire, is beyond all question the blackest, dirtiest and least agreeable. It is indeed impossible to walk through the streets without suffering from the dense closes of smoke constantly pouring from the great open furnaces in and around town. In his book Sheffield EastEnders, Keith Farnsworth described the citywide impacts that the two Naismith steam forge hammers at rival works Thomas Firth and Son had upon the population. The increasing size of the hammers used to forge bigger and bigger guns brought something new to the East End scene. The constant thud, thud, thud and the tremendous vibrations. People soon learned to live with the noise, but the shaking of the earth and the surrounding buildings landed Firths in court twice. Neighbouring works complained that the vibrations from the hammers were causing damage to their machinery and when the desks in their offices began to shake, making it impossible for clerks to write in their ledgers. As the heavy industry in Sheffield continued to develop, in later years J.B. Priestley would write, Sheffield, far below, looked like the interior of an active volcano. George Orwell turned his unhappy attentions to Sheffield too, in his book The Road to Wigan Pier, where he described the city as follows, At night, when you cannot see the hideous shapes of the houses and the blackness of everything, a town like Sheffield assumes a kind of sinister magnificence. Sometimes the drifts of smoke are rosy with sulphur and serrated flames, 
like circular saws squeeze themselves out from beneath the cowls of the foundry chimneys. Through the open doors of foundries, you see fiery serpents of iron being hauled to and fro by red-lit boys, and you hear the whiz and thump of steam hammers and the scream of the iron under the blow. In the middle of the noise and dirt of one of the great cities powering the Industrial Revolution, my great-great-grandfather was diligently going on about his job and educating himself to a university standard. I wonder how much Fred would observe his workmates, like Tommy and Kelsey, the very red-lit boys that Orwell mentioned, and realised that being able to access education had meant he'd escaped their fate. I also wonder if the long walks into the countryside were another way that Fred found escape. They feature a lot in the entries of his diary during the autumn of 1879, and he also gives us glimpses of his and Jane's relationship becoming more serious. September the 3rd. I should have gone to Sheffield to pay my club money. I had not any money to do so. Went with Vincent, John O'Donnell for a walk through Catcliffe, Treaton, Orgreave and Hansworth. The moon shone splendidly. I did not see Janie, though should have liked. Thursday, September the 4th. Saw Janie in the evening. Friday, September the 5th. Went to a meeting of our Mutual Improvement Society, which was not well attended. John Mies refused to retain the secretary's office, so I was chosen but declined, and eventually the matter was left over. Saturday, September the 6th. Did not play cricket in the afternoon, but did some arithmetic instead. In the evening, went to see Janie. We went down to Grange Lane, or Spooner's Road, and then towards Woodhouse across the fields. Rested on a stile, inner style, for about half an hour went towards Woodhouse through the fields, moralised a little on the bridges in the woods, and then went towards Orgreave, then Hansworth. Sunday, September the 7th, got up at six, went to Catcliffe, Hansworth, Woodhouse, Richmond, and then through the fields to Darnall. The sunshine shone magnificently, then went to church after breakfast. After dinner, went to see Janie, took her to Carbrook to her relations, and then went home. Went to Attercliffe Church with her in the evening afterwards. Went to Hansworth with her. It seems that her former admirer, Mr Walter Brook, is at their house, which causes me some uneasiness. Mr Parr, Miss Bray's lover, Janie tells me, is at Bray's today, which proves that Warburton's don't consider me sufficiently eligible to invite me either to dinner or to tea. But perhaps in time I may overcome their dislike. Monday, September the 8th. Went to the baths at 6pm. When I got home, I found my sister, 
Louisa, and my sister-in-law, Jane, so went out at nine for a walk, saw Rennie, had a walk with him. He is going to the classes at Carbrook Board School. Fred would often visit his sister, Louisa. They were very close. So I'm assuming from this that he may not have been particularly fond of his sister-in-law. But I've also noticed that when there is a house full, Fred often makes himself scarce. On balance, he definitely seems to prefer one-to-one company. Tuesday, September the 9th. Went to see Janie. Had a very enjoyable evening with her. Coming home, met Rennie, who lent me his books, one about acoustics, light and heat, and the other called English Pictures, drawn with pen and pencil. A very good one. Thursday, September the 11th. Saw Janie in the evening. She has got a Zulu hat, which I tried on. It just suits me. It rained a little, so did not stay as long as usual. Although it rained, we did not forget the style. Mentioning that style again, eh? It's after coming back from holiday that Fred first starts obliquely referring to his and Janie's relationship getting a little more physical. I know from later notes in Fred's diary and in the letters that these two did not restrict themselves to a bit of chaste kissing. I found an archived copy of Elements of Acoustics, Light and Heat by William Lees, which I think was originally published in 1876, but other books about those subjects, which is now called physics, also existed at the time. English Pictures Drawn with Pen and Pencil has also been archived and was again published in 1879. It's a gazetteer full of beautiful landscapes, engraved in a romanticised style. In the absence of travel, books like these would have been the primary way that my great-great-grandparents and people of the time would have got to know about their world. Anyway, despite extensive digging and asking around, I have not yet been able to work out what the heck a Zulu hat is. The first battle of the Anglo-Zulu War had taken place in southern Africa in July 1879, and commercial establishments back in Great Britain seem to have been amazingly quick off the mark to exploit the so-called exoticism of the encounter. There are newspaper advertisements from July 1879 placed by clothing companies offering Zulu hats with headlines such as 1,000 hats will be given away, a great curiosity, come early and get one. Or another, selling both Afghan hats and Zulu hats for ladies and gentlemen for sixpence as part of their specialities for summer wear. Fred's description in his Bridlington letter was that they were a shapeless, wide-brimmed sun hat made of very coarse brown shawl. If anyone who's listening to this podcast has any idea what a Zulu hat might have looked like, can you please let me know? By the autumn of 1879, Janie and Fred's relationship appears to be getting quite serious, as there is a curious mention of swapping photographs in Fred's diary. During September 1879, he pays one of his regular visits to his friends, brother and sister, Fred and Amy Johnson. The official reason he visits is to borrow the current bestseller, Helen's Babies, from Amy, but at the same time, he delivers his photograph to her to give to Jane. Amy already has Jane's photograph ready to give to him, which she does, and Fred records that he was obliged. Some setting up has gone on here. 
Now, Fred and Jane have already swapped photos before, back in February, when they decided to split up for a while. It was a parting act, giving each other a keepsake. This time, Fred and Jane have deliberately arranged to go to the trouble of getting Amy Johnson to deliver their photographs. Is this a public signal that they are officially courting? They now have a witness that they have exchanged their likenesses. No letters exchanged from this stage of their courtship has survived. But Fred's recollections for September in 1879 show that they saw plenty of each other, gave each other gifts, shared books, went to the theatre, and on one occasion endured the same sermon twice. Sunday, September the 14th. Was out by 7am, went for a walk, went to Attercliffe Church in the morning, in the afternoon went with Fred Johnson for a walk to Hansworth, saw Janie, went in with her, there was no one in but her. Did not stay long. In the evening, went with Janie to Darnall Church. There, instead of Mr Littlewood the vicar, was our curate Mr Bowen, preaching the preached, the very sermon he had preached at our church the previous Sunday evening, so had to make the best of it. Once was bad enough even then, it would seem. The last two weeks of September 1879 in Fred's diary, the entries are perfunctory and frustrating. I have this window on their world, but the glass is misted over. In this period of 12 days, Fred and Jane see each other, 10 of them, events rather than the words, point to two young people who are besotted with each other. And while it is hard to see Jane's character through Fred's eyes, their differences are rather marked. Fred lends her stories, buys her prayer books. Jane herself goes in for flower shows, shopping, and buys Fred a smoking cap, which I find both hysterical and rather enchanting. Thursday, September the 18th, 1879. Ted was coming up for a walk, but had the diarrhoea, so did not turn up. Fred came up to show me that he had got a second-class certificate in scripture knowledge. We went for a walk, saw Janie, had a few words with her. She soon found out that I had been smoking. When we came back, we overtook Amy Johnson and Lucy Craven. We went a short way with them. Amy's always talking about my spending my money instead of saving it, as though a fellow was going to get married straight off. Went to the baths, swam 16 lengths, which equals 1,168 yards. Friday, September the 19th, went with Janie to the theatre to see Our Boys. She did not go home to Hansworth, but stayed at Darnall. Saturday, September the 20th, went for a walk in the woods in the afternoon, but the keeper came and turned me out. In the evening, saw Janie, went up at 7.30, but had to wait until 8 for her. Lent her the book my sister lent me, Love, Courtship and Marriage. Saturday the 21st, John Mies, John Henry Chambers, Robert Maltby and myself went to Treaton Church. When we got there, we found it closed for repairs went to Brimsworth, called in at the Angel and had some rum and milk, which I think does not agree with me for I had a headache in the evening. Thursday, September the 23rd, was working until 8pm. Went up to Hansworth, saw Janie, went to Woodhouse Mill with John Warburton. Saw Janie when we got back. Janie said she couldn't see me tomorrow as agreed. Monday, September the 29th, saw Janie at Darnall. She had been to Sheffield with Ginny Reckless. She gave me a smoking cap, a very nice one. We went through the little wood, 
and rested on the two bridges. In his diary, Fred predominantly reports instances, but not the feelings behind them. I note that he went for a walk with John Warburton, Jane's brother. This must surely show some thawing of the family's attitude to Fred. Amy Johnson's unwelcome remarks about his spending seem to be linked with the seriousness of his relationship with Jane. He's obviously not wanting to rush things. However, Fred is thinking about getting married. He's had a conversation with his sister, which has resulted in Louisa lending him a book to lend to Jane. What conversations have taken place where Fred feels this is an appropriate course of action? Whatever they were, we are now at a place in their relationship where they are making their courtship public and seeking the advice of his family. After the gift of a smoking cap from Janie, Fred comes to the point where he decides he might be letting appearances slip. And he writes, Bought a wood pipe to smoke out of doors, as a clay pipe is not very respectable looking. You're not telling me that Fred wouldn't have taken a quiet moment in front of a mirror to pose with his smoking cap and wood pipe like a proper gentleman. He might even have shown off the whole ensemble to Janie, which I imagine might have caused outbreaks of admiration and hilarity in equal measure. The pair of them are continuing to invent plausible excuses to bump into each other. And on one occasion, Jane, after visiting family in Woodhouse, instead of walking up the two miles up the east side of the hill, on the brow of which is her home in Handsworth, gets on the train to Darnall to meet Fred, so he can escort her the two miles up the west side of the hill instead. Fred, for one of his class, seems to be living a bit of a charmed life. He's got a good job as a clerk at the steelworks. He's in love with his devoted girl, who he sees nearly every other day. He's taking advantage of the adult education movement through his Mutual Improvement Society. And he's just got enough cash to go on some excursions. Another opportunity for an outing turns up in the shape of the royal visit to Sheffield of Prince Leopold, Duke of Albany, the youngest son of Queen Victoria, who came to open a new institution. didn't just bring industry to Sheffield. They brought the chance for improvement with them as well. As part of the university extension movement, with the aim of providing tertiary education in the city, Mark Firth, former Mayor of Sheffield, and one of the sons of the aforementioned Thomas Firth and Sons, they of the egregious hammers, contributed £20,000 to establish a new institution. On Monday the 20th of October 1879, a local public holiday was declared on account of the royal visit and the opening of the new college, which would in later years become Sheffield University. It's rather delightful when a bit of recorded history pops up in Fred's diary or the letters. Fred was our man in the crowd here, and he went up to see Prince Leopold's train arrive and joined the throng at Sheffield Station. Fred got to see him and noted, he is very nice looking. He also wrote, Prince Leopold opens Firth College today, and in consequence there is a general holiday. A party of us walked to Baslow. It rained a little, or else it would have been pleasant. 
we got to see Chatsworth House. It was after 11pm when I got home. I looked on the map to see how long it takes to walk from Darnall to Chatsworth. It's 18 and a half miles, approximately five hours each way. I found out that there were two different omnibus companies running a service to Baslow for two shillings and sixpence for the return journey. However, Fred and his friends feel that their only option is to walk, which perhaps puts into context how much pressure there is on each shilling. By contrast, Jane's mother, Maria, when she was a young girl, took a similar trip with her just-married sister and new brother-in-law to Chatsworth with family and friends, in carriages. I think this particular detail, more than any other, has shown me the contrast in social standing between Fred and Jane. However, a lonely clock may look at a prince. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you for listening to my love letter time machine. Next time, we'll be decoding the secrets in Fred's diary that he wrote in shorthand, and then we'll be cheering him on as he and his football team take on Aston Villa. In the meantime, you can follow me sharing excerpts of Fred and Janie's letters on Instagram at my love letter time machine, or one word, or on my blog at mydarlingjanie.co.uk. Take care and have a great week.